Hello, you're listening to When We Had Cancer, a podcast where I, Sarah Marion, a 25-year-old medical student at University of Virginia, sits down with cancer survivors to listen to their stories since diagnosis. The purpose of these vulnerable conversations is to let survivors know we are here to listen, and more importantly, that it is safe to share. Perhaps these conversations can make all of us, whether we're healthcare professionals, those in training, or the general public, a little more empathetic to the experiences of others. Perhaps survivors will feel some solidarity from listening, and current patients can find hope in hearing stories of those who have come out the other side. This week, I'm joined by Margarita. Hello, Sarah. This is Margarita, and um, I'm happy to be talking to you today. Um, I live in Charlottesville with my family, my husband and my children. I've been um, working and living here for some time, and I am also a two-time cancer survivor. Gotcha. Well, I'm very glad to have you. Thanks for volunteering to do this. Um, I guess right off the bat, I'm curious, what made you decide to volunteer to be on this podcast? Yes. So um, I've been in a sort of like a personal quest of like educating folks about like uh, get your mammograms or (laughs) all my, my friends on social media are like they know that it's coming like if it's the first of the month like time to do your self exam and um i also i've been writing i've been doing illustrations to share with family and friends like i i want to get the word out about what it's like to be in a cancer uh, when you have a cancer uh, diagnosis what is to be done with your active treatment but continue to be a cancer that you're always a cancer patient that's the one of the parts that many people don't understand that they think like oh you're done with chemo and radiation and you're done Mm -hmm. gay right we're back to normal and you are never back to normal right that's a misconception that i've been trying to like clear up with people yeah that's that's super awesome i and i think that gets to kind of what this podcast is all about right so I mean, my intention with this podcast, and who's to say if it changes one day, but, you know, I started this whole thing trying to get to cancer survivors, and I put that in quotes, air quotes, because Mm -hmm. I know there's um, different opinions on that term, Um, but in kind of understanding and learning more about the journey after treatment's done Mm -hmm. has been really interesting to me. So so thank you so much for for talking to that point, and um, it really sounds like you're this you know, really important educator in your community. So that's that's so, so cool. Um, and then also one of the ways you do that is through this UVA program, yes. and that's how I actually got in contact with Margarita. Do you mind talking a little bit about yes. that? Yes, yes. Um, so a few years ago, uh, the UVA Cancer Center started um, soliciting folks to volunteer for a cancer peer partner support group. Uh, we had a long training. It was or five months that we had every week. We had some training with different uh, professionals in the hospital and administrators. Uh, we practice with each other how to reach others and how to um, hold, like, hold to hold space for them and to listen because we knew how it was that we tried to say something and people gave us advice on, you should do this, you should eat that, you should see this doctor, you should go sit here, do that. And sometimes that's not what folks are asking. They are asking more like just 
listen to what I am going through and just like acknowledging that they're going through something really hard yeah. and we know that it's hard and just holding space for them. So it's it's been really nice to meet other people um, through the program, uh, but um, other people who are doing the same volunteering work and also the people that we are supporting. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, it's so nice to know that that program exists at UVA and mm-hmm. I wasn't really aware of it until I happened to be in the cancer center seeing um, a patient of mine and I just saw a little flyer on yes. the wall and I was like, oh my God, yes. this is so cool. And then secondarily, I was like, you know what, this might be a good, <laughs> a good way to recruit people for this podcast if all yes. of the volunteers are survivors themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's awesome. Um, well, before we get into your journey... Um, I'm of the belief that we should treat people with disease as whole people, and they're not just that. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't mind just speaking more to kind of your, you know, t- telling us about yourself beyond the, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the disease. If, right. If that's yeah. okay. Thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, so I uh, was born and was raised in Mexico. That's where my family lives. Um, I moved to uh, California in the late 90s work. <laughs> I met my husband there and then we relocated to Virginia later in two, the early 2000s and we've been here since then. We have two children. Uh, we have a lot of friends and close relationships in the community so we are very happy here and we still go visit our families in our respective countries. So. Okay, great. Awesome. So you've lived in a few different places. I'm sure Charlottesville is quite different from the places you've lived before. (laughs) Um, Here in Charlottesville, what are some things that you like to do for fun, things that, you know, you like to do on the weekends or things like that? Yes. So there is a very big um, community that likes to do all these uh, yoga and exercise classes and stuff. So I've been going since the pandemic. My teacher moved her classes outdoors. So we've been meeting in the park in like 100 degree weather or 30 degree weather <laughs> online unless there is precipitation we're out there so that's been really nice for me but we also uh, bought my husband and I love movies so we enjoy going to the film festival in town oh very cool that's really fun and coming up is the book festival also we enjoy that and we like going for hikes. There is so many hikes around here. So it's really yeah. easy to go. Just like, hey, let's just go for a hike. And like not plan, just let's go. Yeah, that's awesome. I um, am, I think I'm slowly appreciating kind of the outdoorsy life here in Charlottesville. I was just on a hike yesterday with my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just so nice to be outside. I've yes. been in the hospital, you know, six days of the week. And I have my one day off. And I was like, let's let's go outside. Yes. Let's get some sun. Yes. Um, so that's great. And speak to your point about um, liking films and, and movie theaters and stuff. Have you ever been to the Alamo? Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I am like such an Alamo fan. I love that you can order food and drinks like during the movie. Yes. I just yes. get a little laugh every time I see like, you know, the waiters bending over and <laughs> through. It's just like such a silly phenomenon, but I, it's so fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's great. Yeah. So let's get into it. Tell me about your journey. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, I, I went to my uh, well woman checkup in 2016 and my doctor asked me to go get a mammogram because she was herself um, 
cancer, breast cancer survivor, and I told her, oh, I don't have any history, I don't feel any lumps, I'm fine, I'm good, I don't need to do this. And she was very insistent, nope, you have to go. I need a baseline, even if nothing happens, it's fine, it's fine, I just need a baseline. So I went to get my baseline mammogram. I had to come back. Um, there is um, a lot of women don't know that they have dense breasts and it's very hard to see if you have anything or not. So they were like, oh, we need a repeat mammogram because you have dense breasts. Okay, fine. I I was too busy. Um, when my kids were very little, I like, didn't do anything, but it was little kid stuff everywhere. And they were finally um, eight and 10. So I was like, yes, I can join the board of this organization in town and volunteer in this thing and do all of these things. So I was too busy to care about mammograms. <laughs> but um, it happened and uh, I went back for the repeat mammogram. The radiologist um, told me you have some microcalcifications, but it could be cancer and you need to see this doctor that is right here in this center. So I knew nothing about cancer. I had friends who have gone through it, but I never was involved on that part. It was more in the supporting the patient. So I didn't know anything about how to navigate a breast cancer diagnosis. So I just went to the doctor that they told me the same day, like it was immediately after the mammogram. Um, they did a biopsy the same day and they told me a few days, weeks later that I had breast cancer. Wow. Do you remember that phone call? I do, I do. It was, yeah, my husband was traveling for work and I had the two kids by myself, so it was a little hard to like, work, kids, everything by myself, and then this falls in my lap. So it was, I was already stressed out, and then that comes, and um, the way that the phone call came was, um, I didn't feel any empathy mm. from the doctor. So it was really hard that just to hear, oh, you're gonna be okay. Okay, bye, <laughs> just hang up. It was just, I, that's all I remember her saying, like, oh, you're gonna be okay, bye. And just hanging up, like not even waiting for me to respond because I was completely in shock. Um, it was it was really something. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that, you know, it wasn't, you weren't feeling that empathy, that compassion. There was from no the... empathy, no. Um, I eventually ended up switching practices um, because the the diagnosis was wrong. Um, there are different types of breast cancer and the most common is ductal. And I didn't have, I had zero ductal, it was all lobular. Mm. <laughs> and the radiologist had made a mistake even though after a couple of other uh, biopsies. But also, um, the doctor, after the one biopsy, was already scheduled me for surgery without figuring out if the cancer had gone anywhere else. Mm. And by that second appointment, I had already poured through Google, my local library <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> and I knew that I needed to follow a protocol to figure out, okay, it, we know it's on your breast, but where else can it be? Right. Is it on your leaf nodes? It's not, okay, good, then we can try this. So, so there are all these paths that you follow. And um, they were like, oh no, we don't need any more tests. We're ready to go for the surgery. Here is the appointment with the plastic surgeon. And that's when I was like, oh no, this is not 
this is not okay. Yeah. Red, red flag. So I switched practices and I have been very happy with my, with all of my doctors. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you, since switching, I've been having a, had a really yes. positive experience, but man, it's scary to kind of, yes. you know, feel like something's off, something's not right when you're yes. dealing with something as yes, yes, yes. heavy as a breast cancer diagnosis, you know, like as if the emotions themselves are not enough to kind of have to navigate and the time and the, you know, finance or whatever, you're also dealing with like potentially wrong information, mistakes made, you mentioned. Um, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. And, you know, I can, as someone who's entering the medical field, I can appreciate mistakes happen, but to like, you know, hear um, kind of firsthand of this experience of like being on the end of that, mm-hmm. obviously no one wants to be yes. on that end. Yes, I mean, so. the the misreading of the, of the, of the, from the radiologist side, I mean, it happens because um, in many places, like in, in at UVA, they have a specialist radiologists that they only see one type of imaging and want to, like they specialize on breast cancer or any other type of cancer. So I feel like that's, and from my opinion, that's the way to go. But I know that that not that's not possible everywhere, and that's that's fine. But then the the being pushed to do things without giving you the whole information, that's the part that is really, I, I know things are changing and there is more like a shared model that, that you discuss the things and the patient ultimately makes the decision. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've experienced now. So, and I'm very happy to, that I have found that and, and that it was not in my head. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was something yeah. real and um, that, that other people can benefit from what I went through. Yeah. Like I, that's one of the parts that I want to tell people that like, hey, you can always ask for a second opinion. And right. you are allowed to, and nobody's going to get mad at you. And you switch, it's your choice. It's you, you, have, you have that yeah. power on you. Right. I was going to say, I mean, truly, like you are the example of like an empowered patient. You took it upon yourself to learn using outside resources, kind of what the, you know, steps are supposed to be, how they're supposed to do things, um, and kind of seeking out a second opinion, that's phenomenal. And I think a lot of people can, you know, learn from this. You know, mm-hmm. I think second opinions can be really, really valuable. And I don't know if it's if it's talked about enough. Um, yeah, so that's that's interesting. So, um, so you get this, another doctor, mm-hmm. and... And the first thing they say is we have to reduce, sorry, but we do have to reduce, uh, we have to reevaluate all the biopsies and most likely have a few more. But we also had to go through all these other tests to make sure you don't have, like I didn't say anything like, oh, do we have to do this? Like I said with the previous doctor, because was like, maybe they'll just tell me, no, you just had to go in surgery. But no, they, I was very happy to hear like, we can't schedule you for surgery because we don't know where the cancer is. We need to have a full picture. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm sold. Where do I <laughs> and you're already thinking in your head. You're like, oh, perfect. This goes with what I thought was supposed to. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. So you got the additional test. I got the additional test. Um, I had some uh, one lymph node that, that was shown on the test. And um, so we knew that I had to have 10 radiation because it was on my lymph node and I could not have a lumpectomy because it was on my lymph node. So it was more extensive and it was lobular. That tends to be on many little places instead of one lump. 
Mm. I had no lump. There is mm. there is no usually no lumps with lobular. It's all like a scatter of little tumors. And uh, so I I had a mastectomy and then I had radiation. And when I was going through radiation, I mean I I did the surgery and it was it was hard, but it was manageable after some time like having I think my my worst nightmare is having drains hanging from my body that mm -hmm. was like the worst because you just it's like somebody's pinching you with baby nails <laughs> sometimes if yeah. you move the wrong way if they are just attached with the one stitch and you move a little bit one way it pulls you and it you remember that you have that hanging mm -hmm. that but it all it all healed. Um, my reconstruction was autologous, so, so they use my own body fat. And that takes a lot of time to recover and to recover your strength and all of that. But I was, I mean, I signed up for it and I was ready to do it. I was going well. And we reached radiation and then my energy started like going really <laughs> The accumulation, they, the doctors tell you, like, by the end of it, even after, you're going to feel so tired. Uh, just take it easy. Uh, be mindful of what of your own body. Take naps, rest, <laughs> mm. do whatever you need to do. And, yes, it was really bad. Um, somebody hit my car when I was driving to radiation. Oh my God. It, like the whole thing like came crumbling apart and I was like, I need help. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot yeah. do this by myself. So they gave me some referral for um, uh, psychotherapy. So then I used to that, that I didn't even think at the beginning, like, oh, I must need help for myself. Oh, like me for mentally. mental mental health. So <laughs> because you... I I was feeling okay. I I, okay, I can do this. Yes, I I I don't want to say that I was like cheerful and excited every day, every minute. But I tried to strive for that. Like right. there were days that I was really down, and I was like, I don't want to do anything. I'm just gonna sit here and read, or sleep, or just think how miserable my life is. But yeah. I tried to be like, okay, I need to do this because I have young children. I want to leave. I, my, my family wants to see me. I haven't seen them because I'm stuck here. I can't move. I can't do anything. Um, and, uh, but I, I did try very hard until that point, and that was like very distinct break point, like mentally, that sometimes we don't see it. And that's one of the, the reasons that I really wanted to join the peer partner program because I know that just some, having somebody listening to you and not, you, know, you don't even have to say much. You just have to be there for that person and it helps so much. I mean, it helped me a lot yeah. to go through that. For sure. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that is, um, you know, you're obviously being very vulnerable and, and sharing kind of the mental aspect of it. And I... I think the themes of sort of like the fatigue and the, and the mental struggle and, and, you know, that stuff definitely comes up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's very important that patients, survivors, et cetera, like give themselves 
that kind of grace to be like, yeah, it's okay if I wake up today and I don't feel like this brave warrior, right? I think there's so much out there about like staying positive and yes. et cetera, et cetera. But, but sometimes maybe, you know, you're just feeling, you you're feeling pretty yeah. awful, right? <laughs> you can't, you're having a hard time holding it together. And, and I know a lot of, I mean, we're talking about women in these ages where they're going to have kids potentially and, and having to kind of deal with the rest of life that doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of mothers out there, right? A lot of um, wives, et cetera. And so there's still these all these responsibilities. And, and um, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously someone who hasn't experienced that, but I can only imagine how hard it must feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you, do you, if you wouldn't mind, can you speak a little bit more to kind of the breaking point and was it yourself or somebody else who suggested seeking out mental health so help? I, so I still dropped, they, somebody reared than me and I was like, but I cannot lose my appointment. So I still dropped myself to, <laughs> to the center for radiation and the machine was broke and so they had to reschedule me and I missed like a couple of sessions and so then they usually give you the weekend off so you go Monday through Friday but because of that we all all the patients from there got moved to the hospital and then we had to go like round the clock like no breaks in between so I was really feeling so so tired, like I needed yeah. just that break of like, okay, and it was summer, so it was really hot. I cannot, I could not be in the heat because I felt like somebody was holding a torch to my breast. It was so, it was like everything felt so hard to do. Like it was like the weather is bad, um, the kids are not in school, <laughs> <laughs> I still have to work. <laughs> And there, yeah, everything was happening at the same time, and it was so much. So when I reached the radiation center that day, and I, they told me, oh, the machine is broken, but you can see the doctor. I, I was just crying, and my radiologist, <laughs> oncologist doctor was like, can I give you a hug? He was so, she was so amazing. I mean, even before that, I really liked her a lot. But that day, she was like, "You know what? <laughs> maybe you need, <laughs> maybe you need some other services that we have." And um, and I was like, "Yes, I think I do. I do need it." <laughs> so I was I was happy that um, the services are there and that somebody was there to say, like, "Hey, this person is a good candidate for next step." <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, that's. That's awesome that you had a moment like that with your radiation oncologist. Um, so for those who don't know, I'm interested in becoming an oncologist. And so this battle of mine right now is trying to decide if I want to do radiation oncology or medical oncology. And a lot of people are kind of confused by that because they do such different things, right? Yes. Like one person's in charge of chemotherapy, another person's looking at CT scans and giving doses of radiation. Um but for me, you know, I'm thinking, I just want to take care of cancer patients, and I mm-hmm. want to form that very important kind of like emotional bond with these patients that I think a lot of other specialties may not may not get offered. Um, mm-hmm. But it really does speak to like who who does this job and how important their roles really are, right? Like you can be the person that kind of saves <laughs> from a really yes. awful day otherwise, right? Like yes. you just one hug. I'm thinking about um, this radiation oncologist with Memorial Sloan Kettering that I worked with um, a couple summers ago, and I got the opportunity to shadow her in a clinic. And she had this sort of tradition of giving an origami paper crane 
to women who finish their radiation like in its entirety, mm-hmm. which like six weeks or eight week courses, and just seeing the emotion on their faces after that, like I was in tears, you know, and I didn't know these women. And it's just, yeah. it's incredible to think of, you know, these relationships and how meaningful yes. they can be, even if you're just seeing a, a radiation oncologist for however long, right? Yes. Um, so who's to say what I end up doing, but like <laughs> I'm just getting emotional just thinking about it and hearing your story. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's let's pivot. Um, you mentioned your children who were eight and ten at some point. Talk to me about their experience, mm-hmm. kind of secondhand through all of this, and how yes. you, if you did, speak to them about what was going on. Yes, I I I did have to talk to them. Um, so in between the being diagnosed and then my mistake, so that was end of November around Thanksgiving. And I didn't tell them until closer to Christmas time when we were gonna visit my family in Mexico. And I had I didn't wanna tell my parents on FaceTime, so I was gonna tell them when we were there because I felt I, I mean they needed to know. I didn't I didn't wanna be one of those people that keeps it in wraps and nobody knows about it because I don't know. That's just me. Maybe it works for some people, it didn't work for me. <laughs> and I was going to tell my parents, and I didn't want the kids to be scared when they saw me. They they understand some Spanish, but they are not completely fluent. So I didn't want them to be so confused seeing everybody crying, and they didn't understand what we were talking about or something, if they happened to be in the same place, because kids, you can't really control them where they're going to be moving. So I talked to them. I talked to the school counselor, and that was she was a great resource for me. Um, she gave me a lot of information. I went to the local library and bought, like, look for all these books, like how to talk to kids. There were very few, and the librarian did make a note of that, of like looking for more, adding more books for that. Mm-hmm. So that was good. And so we just, I just, we just talked to them like, hey, um, I'm gonna have to have surgery. We don't know yet when. Um, when we go uh, visit. Uh, Grandma and Grandpa, we're going to have to tell them, and they might be a little sad, so don't be scared. Um, and you need to talk to somebody. Uh, I already arranged with the counselor to talk to you. And some of their like their main teachers, I also talked to them. And we knew a lot of people in that school, so a lot of them um, came together, and they were really nice. Like some, One of them gave... Um, there is to my kids so they could write questions or if they were scared to write them to give them to them and then they would write them back so it was I mean I felt really supported from the school yeah that's so awesome I wouldn't have even thought about you know using school resources but that's so great that that was available to you and, yes. and that it's it, it when it sounds yeah it sounds like a great thing um from what you could gather how do you think they dealt with it um, yeah so the younger one was still she I don't think she understood very well what was happening I mean she knew that I was gonna be in the hospital for some time and then they couldn't really hug me because they could hurt me but they can come from one side not the other side and all those things and that they needed to come from preschool shower and then they could come see me because they nobody wanted to get me sick mm. and like all these rules they she understood that but I don't think she got it 
But the older one was very much in tune with like everybody else's emotions and how, I mean, they, they can see you, you're, even if you're trying to put a happy face, it's not, it's a fake happy face and they can mm-hmm. tell it, they can say you're faking it. So she needed more support. Um, we did have, a, at some point we ended up um, looking for therapy because yeah, she needed that and, and she's been much better with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's kind of this interesting point, right? That like children may not understand mm-hmm. what's, what breast cancer means, right? Like what like, radiation is doing or what your state, you know, lymph, obviously they're not going to understand like lymph node involvement, but at the same time, children are probably more perceptive than we yes. give them credit for being. And, and, you know, a 10 year old can see that the, parents are hiding back, fighting tears, right? Yes. And that can, like, alone be enough to kind of make them mm-hmm. struggle. Yes. Um, but, you know, therapy, obviously, like, you went down that road for one of your children, and, and I think that's great that you you sought that out. Um, okay, so so you, you got surgery. Mm-hmm. You went through radiation. radiation. And then... I started um, tamoxifen. Okay. Uh, until uh, last year, in well, I throughout the that one, the, I finished treatment in 2018, the active treatment, and I just started on um, endocrine therapy with tamoxifen uh, because I was not menopausal and. Um, the other option is aromatized inhibitors. So we were just like, okay, let's just wait it out because you are near menopause, so we can just wait it out and then we can switch you. In the meantime, my body um, started to hurt on my left side again, <laughs> my left ovary. So I was being uh, monitored with yearly ultrasounds because I had a cyst in there. And it was just being kept on watch and it grew a little bit, but it wasn't that bad. And then it shrank a little bit, so good. And last year, uh, when I went, uh, it had grew immensely. So it was, again, red alarms. Um, I saw somebody else for oncology, gynecology, oncology, and they were like, well, we, we cannot really do a biopsy, but you need to have surgery. Uh, five days from today. Oh my God. And uh, we had to do a hysterectomy and operate. So they remove ovaries and tubes and uh, uterus, the whole thing. And uh, once it comes out, we can see if it's cancerous, you're going to have to have chemotherapy. If it's not, then we're good. Then that's it. Like you don't have to worry about anything else. And it was ovarian cancer. So I had to add chemotherapy after that. It felt so different than with the breast cancer because it was so long and sometimes I was so angry that I already know it. Why don't we schedule the surgery? Like, why is it taking so long? (laughs) It was months. It was until the end of February when I had surgery and it felt like it just kept dragging and dragging. And this one felt like I didn't even know what was happening because things were happening so fast. You're saying compared to the breast the, cancer yes, situation? Yes, yes. Okay. We are compared to the breast cancer. The ovarian was like, 
I went to see oncology on a Thursday, and the next Tuesday I had already surgery, and three weeks later I was already starting chemo. So it was mm. just so, like, I could barely, like, figure out what was going to happen. Right. Like, I mean, again, we had to talk to the kids. Um, I, I mean, they were concerned, but they weren't as much because they were like, oh, yeah, last time we were very scared, and she's here, so... I think she'll be okay. <laughs> uh, they, yeah, and it was, uh, uh, yeah, they, 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 they felt a little more resilient, maybe to me, even though they, they did, they do need support. So I did look out for support again for them. Yeah. Before and um, I had already my support in place, so I already had that. And um, yeah, so it felt it felt very different. Yeah, and it, it sounds like all of you know, kind of that you all were resilient in the past, and that maybe helped with this yes. new diagnosis. Yeah, it's sort of like oh, we need to switch gears, like from not like let's worry some, but let's not right. over worry because it. It didn't help last time. Yeah, exactly. Like the kids are like, oh, well, you know, we were, we really struggled last time and everything ended up being okay. You know, maybe we don't have to be as emotionally overwhelmed this time. Mm -hmm. And then similarly, our mom was able to get through that whole treatment course. And so they probably, you know, this is obviously me trying to make sense of it, but I wonder too if they're like, oh, well, our mom was strong enough to get through it last time. So mm -hmm. she'll be yes. strong enough this time. Yes. So, so I have a question. What was, what took, why was it so long before you got the, the surgery? So um, after the one, because diagnosis? I switched doctors and then it was the winter holiday and the winter break and everybody was out. So that took a few weeks and then. I only saw the new doctor in the beginning of January, and then there was like CAT scan, PET scan, more ultrasound guided biopsy, another one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I had, um, separately I had a lymph node dissection. I had that two weeks before the mastectomy, so I had like an outpatient surgery first. And then I had the mastectomy, and then, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. it took longer because of all the testing and because of me switching practices I see okay but yeah I could you know it sounds tough to have been waiting mm -hmm. um yes and so sorry this question just popped in my head but I'm curious so you have the breast cancer and then you have the ovarian cancer was there a conversation about genetic testing yes I did had genetic testing when I went through a breast cancer okay yes I already had all of that and my the markers for ovarian cancer where, I mean, I don't have anything in the genetics part, and then there are all these uh, blood markers, and my levels were like insignificant again. I so see. it was very, very low. So, and I think that it might have been because it was a um, stage two, so comparatively, like ovarian cancer usually, unfortunately, most women find when it's stage four, not early on it's very rare so i feel fortunate to have been monitored because of that cyst mm -hmm. that 
it was right away that, hey, this is happening and we need to act fast. Right. Um, I had no lymph involvement this time. It was just that and they were able to get the whole thing out in one, in the certain, the surgery. So, yeah, it was. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. How, what was your, um, you know, because a, a total hysterectomy is a pretty big operation. Um, what were your, like, how did you think about that? Um, yes, yeah, so I had um, already um, with my with the tamoxifen and all the treatment for breast cancer, uh, vaginal drainage, and like all those things that happen around like pelvic health floor health that you need to take care of. So I was already used um, working with uh, my doctors to see what was what was I allowed to do, what was I not allowed to do, because my breast cancer uh, is estrogen positive, so um, I cannot have like uh, like hormone <laughs> therapy, hormonal therapy, so I had to do different things, um, although they do allow you to have topical estrogen. Um, so that was already a concern, like, okay, we're already, doing all these things like how is that gonna change now that that's that the hysterectomy is happening hysterectomy is happening so I had um, I did ask for uh, to see somebody to help me with pelvic floor therapy like physical therapy but pelvic floor after um, and then what else I needed to be doing like kegels and like all these other things that we have to do to to be able to feel whole, <laughs> like mm -hmm. you are a whole person and you are still a sexual being, you are a, a human. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that had to be, that. yeah, I discussed that with my doctors and they, yeah, they all told, they talked to me openly about it, so. That's great, yeah. Um, so just remind me what year you had the surgery, the total hysterectomy. That was last year, so 2022, okay. in March. Okay. Um, before I continue, I just want to kind of go on a little soapbox, but I just want to say how incredibly strong, I mean, you are, really, for having these two diagnoses, going through the treatments, and and then kind of unpacking that story with people you're involved in the breast cancer community here acting as this sort of like volunteer with this peer support program to kind of talk to um, current patients kind of going through it the strength that you offer up to them the strength that you've had to go through this I mean I am obviously of the mindset that I think that there's so much healing that can be through telling your story but I think at the same time it's it's also hard emotionally to unpack mm -hmm. that. Um, on this podcast, we've had a lot of women who've gotten very emotional, understandably, getting talking through the yes. call when they got that first breast cancer diagnosis and that stuff. And so I just want to commend you and really applaud you for like, this is awesome that you are so strong and you've gone through this and you're sitting here with me now. I'm like tearing up as I talk to you about this, but I just want to want to say that. So, um, so it's February 2023. What is life like now? Um, I am feeling much better. I still have side effects from before and from last year. <laughs> there are side effects that I have to deal with, um, 
but I'm feeling pretty strong. I'm I'm back in my yoga class and I'm feeling pretty good. I last year uh, because I was already part of the peer support and I had to tell the administrators, the coordinators of the room, hey, I'm gonna be out of commission because I'm having surgery. But I already knew so many people in there and so um, one of them was my peer partner, like I was automatically assigned one person because I was already there and we knew each other. So it was nice to have somebody work with me the whole time. And she's had she had the diagnosis backwards. She had the first ovarian and then cancer. So we really had a lot in common. So <laughs> it was nice to have somebody there like by default. It was I didn't feel alone or trying to find things. I already had somebody that I could like ask any questions or, yeah. or just talk about it. Yeah, that's great. That's so great. Um, and so now, like you think about your story, um, which obviously has been a pretty comp, like you know, pretty intense course. What do you think weighs on you the heaviest when you think about your whole journey with cancer? Um. I think that uh, my one of my big lessons was to to be my my best advocate. Like I'm the best advocate for myself. Like nobody else can advocate for me, but me. I can ask for help for somebody to help me when I I'm not able to. I like bring my husband to all the appointments and I have prep him before. If I forget this, you're gonna say it. <laughs> um, but just having the, that first part where I felt so lonely with a doctor that didn't understand me, that part is still like, ah, yeah, sometimes it's, it's hard to not think about it, how, how unpersonal the relationship was um, and how that's not the way that, that it's been after. So mm-hmm. there is... That that doesn't have to be the experience for anybody. I think I feel like that's kind of like what I want. Like nobody to go through that part because yeah. that was so hard. Yeah. So hard not to be not to be seen as a person, but just a diagnosis. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I I want to also make the point that I mean, you switched um, doctors. It sounds like because of the mistakes and um, kind of the disordered steps, right? But but I, I'm of the mind that if, if you're thinking your doctor is not treating you like a person, if they're mm-hmm. being apathetic, they're not showing compassion, I think that's a means to switch doctors, especially yeah. when it's something as heavy as cancer. There's so much of a like mental battle that goes with that. Um, you know, don't be afraid to, to seek out someone else. And, and your point to like advocating for yourself, like it's okay, mm-hmm. advocate for yourself. You deserve the best kind of doctor, mm-hmm. both from like a treatment standpoint, like their knowledge base and how they treat their patients, but also like from a kind of an interpersonal perspective, how they, the kindness and compassion they show their patients too is, is, is very important too. So, mm-hmm. so thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so what does it look like moving forward? So um, to my, I'm, I'm more, ver- I'm better versed, I guess, on, on breast cancer and how you uh-huh. have these mammograms every year to yes. kind of monitor, um, what what about ovarian cancer? Talk to me about that. So what for for breast because if it's because it's lobular, it's not very well um, 
it doesn't show very well on mammograms. So I have a mammogram and I have an MRI six months apart. So okay, gotcha. I have those two uh, gotcha. just okay. because of that. And then I am, I'm no longer in tamoxifen. I'm on, I'm on um, aromatized inhibitors now Okay. because I don't have any ovaries now. That's how that's working. For ovarian, I'm going for my last three-month appointment in a few weeks. Every three months, seeing my oncologist, mm-hmm. and then it will switch to six months. And um, since then, um, I had some biopsy because I had some uh, polyp of sorts <laughs> that they had to take out, but it was not cancerous, so it, everything was fine. But we had a scare since then, so that's the only thing. It's just um, if I notice anything, then they do another um, scan. But if they, everything looks fine, I don't have any issues, then it's just regular visits with oncology. I see. Okay. Yeah, I don't have to have any other treatment. That's that's it. Like, yeah. So I guess my question is, and this is just pure curiosity, like I feel like I hear of, you know, survivors potentially being kind of anxious in this like post-treatment phase, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of anxiety around these mammograms, potentially these MRIs. Do you have anxiety? And if so, how do you deal with that? Yes, the anxiety is real for everybody. (laughs) It's it's very real. Um, I I do go, I, I go every morning out walking just because it helps me with my Sometimes my pain, my back pain, so I just get up and go for a walk every day in the morning. And it's very early in the morning, so there is rarely anybody outside, and I'm just, it's my sort of my walking meditation. That helps a lot. Um, when it's really getting closer to it, I tell my family because I can get snappy. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell, oh, I'm having a scan, just so everybody knows, because it happens that I get very anxious and I that's all I can think of and I try to I do a lot of I've been doing since um, my breast cancer diagnosis I did a lot of doodling and sort of illustrations of where I was in the process through the whole thing so I've been working on a book about that so I just work on more I cannot write if I'm anxious but I can draw mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of that the whole time like that's my way of like okay I, I am too much right now even to myself let's do something else and that can sometimes it's nothing it's just like repetition of lines like centangles just to like just doing something repetitive to take your mind out of it and just like focus on something else that's not the scan yeah it's great that you've come up with kind of these coping mechanisms to deal with it um and I think it also kind of goes back to our point where, like, you know, people going through this, be kind to yourself, right? Like, it's okay that you're snapping at your family member with an upcoming mammogram. Like, it's completely valid to be anxious about this sort of stuff. It's really hard. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Um, so we're probably coming up on time here. It's been about 45 minutes. So I guess I always ask everybody this. What is sort of a lasting kind of message you want the audience to know? Um, and if you don't mind, if you feel comfortable 
feel free to also say it again in Spanish if you if you'd like. Oh yes, yes, yes. So, um, so the the one thing is that your team, medical team, and you have to be like in sync for this to work. The, I mean, the be, that's, that leads to better outcomes. There is research showing that, that when, when the whole team and you and the patient work together, everything works great because it's, it, it's, it's working. It's like everybody's in sync, everybody helps each other. You can chime in with what you don't want to do or you, what you are scared of or what your concerns are, and they will tell you how to help with that or scrap it from the plan if that's really not necessary and then um, the other part will be like um, there is support out there um, I don't know um, at least in, in Charlottesville it's uh, the peer partner group is really is here and we're very happy to have more people join us and either as bought as peer partners there is more trainings happening we have already three cohorts of people working so it's, it's been really nice to see the team growing and there's more coming up and um, just to to be kind to to yourself because it's, it's a hard battle and it's not your fault it's not because you ate ice cream it's it that yeah no don't listen to anybody who tells you it's your fault it's not your fault it's just something that happened and that's that's how it is. So, um, now I'll say it in Spanish. <laughs> um, lo primero es que tienes que ser uno con tu equipo de médico, porque son cuando trabajas con tu equipo médico y todo, todos están contentos, eh, el tratamiento funciona mejor. Y puedes hacer preguntas, puedes este, estar con miedo, pero los médicos pueden ayudarte a, durante el tratamiento y explicarte por qué tienes que hacer este o el otro tratamiento. Otro es que hay grupos de, de apoyo y en Charlottesville es el Peer Partner Group en la Universidad de Virginia y hay personas como yo que estamos ahí, que hablamos otros idiomas también. Y Estamos aquí para ayudarlos. Great. Thank you so much. Um, this was a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, so this week I was joined by Margarita. Um, and to the audience, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of When We Had Cancer. <laughs>